Hi Tom. Hey Anand. Great to see you today. Thank you, likewise. Uh, so today my guest is Tom von Wunzel. Uh, he's full professor of freight transport and logistics in the operations planning, accounting and control group of the Department of Industrial Engineering and Innovation Sciences at the Eindhoven University of Technology in the Netherlands. Tom is the director of education and graduate program director of the referred department. He's also the program chair of the Bachelor Program of Industrial Engineering and serves as academic director of the Global Supply Chain Management Program at the Antwerp Management School in Belgium. He published several chapters in international books and over 110 papers in leading academic journals such as Management Science, Transportation Science, Interfaces, CNOR, EJOR, and so on. As the lead scientist from his university, he was involved in securing several grants coming from industry, national science foundations, and Europe. Tom is also associate editor for several journals in the transportation field. He's also director of the European Supply Chain Forum, a collaborative effort with about 75 large multinational companies. Tom, it's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you so much. How are you? I'm doing very good. Very good. Thank you for asking. How are you doing? I'm good here. Uh, the, the weather is actually relatively cold to our standards, so I'm enjoying that. <laughs> Well, only 25 degrees then or something like that. Yeah, no, it's actually, yeah, yeah, it goes uh, 22, sometimes 21 at night, but uh, oh, during okay. the day it's 24, yeah, 25 again, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, so, uh, so Tom, uh, do you come from Belgium or the Netherlands? <laughs> the standard question of everybody. No, no, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm a Belgian guy, so I'm a, I, I'm a Flemish guy. I live in the, the, the north of Belgium. If you know, uh, there are two sides. There is a north side which speaks, who speaks Dutch, and the, the, the south side is the French side. And I'm actually coming from the, uh, the Flemish side, so the Dutch-speaking side in the north, close to Antwerp. So I've been yeah, born and raised around Antwerp and everything, also did everything over there. And of course, 20 years ago, I moved into the Netherlands to work, but I still live in Belgium. Ah, okay. Uh, and tell me about your family. My family, yeah. So as I said, I'm uh, born and raised in Antwerp, around Antwerp, always in the area, the big area of the city area of Antwerp, sometimes even in the city. I standard, of course, two parents, otherwise I would not be here. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, parents divorced at a certain point in time. Uh, my mother uh, remarried with uh, with my stepfather when I was 16. It was actually a very nice, uh, very nice setup, of course. And and uh, my stepfather also had the uh, had a daughter, so that became my half sister or something like that. <laughs> and I also have uh, another brother from my uh, from my parents then. So um, so we are with three at home, three killed, three three children at home. Uh, one brother, one sister. And um, my 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 mother and her uh, her stepfather uh, my, her my my stepfather are still uh, living together, of course, also close to Antwerp. And my my father he lives now in uh, China, so he's somewhere having uh, is uh, is is, is um, celebrating his retirement, as they say in in China. And um, and my brother he's. Um, Living now in, in the Czech Republic, he's also working at the university over there. In the, but he's a, in art, so he's a curator in art and these kind of things. 
and my my sister is uh, working as a uh, marketing director in a, one of these marketing consultancy type of companies uh, close to Ghent, which is another place in in, in Flanders. So, so this is a bit in a nutshell the the family at this moment in time. Oh, very interesting. No, uh, some members are quite scattered uh, around, but it's yeah. Uh, so you were born in, in the very end of 1974, almost 75, and that reminds yeah. me of that song 74-75 by the Connells. <laughs> and so your early memories are probably from the 80s. Uh, how you used to spend your time uh, back then? Yeah, yeah, but that's a very different time than it is now. Eh? If I look at my kids now, it's a computer and playing with iPad, iPhone, tablets, and all variations there. At that time, it was more about... Uh, playing at the street, playing uh, with uh, games at home, all these kind of things. So we, and of course, I, I, I also spent uh, the, my, my most of the time basically was going to school, as many of us uh, at the age of six to 18, we all had to go to school. And the, and the hobby time was mostly, def, uh, was mostly given to music. So I spent a lot of time in, uh, in music schools and learning to play the piano at that moment in time. So I, uh, I, I was learning music and music reading and playing the piano and all these kind of things. So that was my largest hobby next to, of course, spending some time with friends and, and a lot of biking also as well and these kind of things. But, uh, but this was a, a very different setting than now. Eh? Now people don't want to go out at that moment in time. We all wanted to be outside and these kind of things. So, so most of the time music as free time and, and studying, of course, at school and, and that right uh i saw on your website uh that you play the tuba yeah 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 so that what what happened actually over over time so yeah you know um at least i maybe i uh, we did not say this but my my mother and my my stepfather are both musicians so they actually play they are professional pianists and everything and um then i started learning the piano but then at the end, I went to the university. I went to study at university, but then I stopped playing the piano. And once, um, at least I stopped going to the music school. Maybe that's a better way of saying it. And then at a certain point, I, uh, when I graduated, I wanted to play another instrument again. So I said, I started with playing the trumpet, so the small one, uh, trumpet. And, um, and yeah, that was a bit too difficult because you have to have a certain uh, tension in your lips to play the, this type of brass instruments. And then I gradually moved into bigger and bigger instruments. So I went from a trumpet, I spent probably three years on a trumpet. Then I moved to the trombone, the, the sliding trumpet, if you want. And then eventually I ended up with, uh, with the tuba, which is the biggest instrument in, uh, in the brass family. So I ended up with uh, playing the tuba for now more than 10, 15 years already. I'm playing it, so it is really uh, fun to do. Mm -hmm. It's a big instrument, so you need a lot of uh, air to play. But right, uh, are you particularly fond of any musical genre or artist? Uh, what do you like to play? Yeah, in in so I play in in in, in orchestra with other people. Of course, we usually play a lot of these kind of. Uh, uh, relatively easy listening type of music which is then going from film music movie music into the standard pop and rock type of things which are all uh, fun of course but we also play uh, uh, music pieces which are specifically composed for the the composition of the orchestra where i'm in playing in and that of course it's uh, 
sometimes very difficult, sometimes easier. But but usually I I, I really enjoy playing the music, which is a uh, more the pop rock musical film music type of uh, uh, genre, right? kind of type of, of, of music that's that's really um, yeah, that's really fun to play. And that's also what you see many of the people like playing that because it's a uh, it's easy listening. Right? It fits quite well in the ears and these kind mm -hmm. of things. So it's uh, your favorite hobby nowadays uh, to, to play music still? Yeah, so of course, I'm, I, uh, another hobby is of course being married and having two kids, uh, but that's, uh, that's a permanent hobby, I think. Uh, that's, <laughs> that's also fun. But uh, most of my time, if my free time goes into playing music, playing the tuba, participating in, in some concerts and these kind of things. So that's uh, uh, to, to disconnect from work, if mm -hmm. you want. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I can I can relate to that. That's that's very nice. Uh, uh, what about school? Uh, did you like to study when you were young? I guess like a little bit like everybody. You 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 do not like it, but you also do not dislike it. So it's a bit like uh, you have to do it, and 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 of course I think um, it, especially uh, lower school, middle school, uh, secondary school, primary school was. Um, was of course reasonably fun and of course sometimes it was a bit uh, not so fun because of some courses being difficult but overall I, I, I liked going to school I did not uh, I think it was uh, not always easy it was sometimes tough but on the other hand it was uh, it was a nice uh, it was a nice time to be in, in school of course and also going to the university was not was, was actually fun so. mm -hmm. uh, it seems that you went to school with a very famous name from Antwerp in our field ah yeah so yeah so yeah, that's so i think um it's it, uh, in the in the fifth and sixth year of secondary school i was both i was sitting together with uh, with kenneth kenneth sorensen at that time and then uh interestingly we had a sort of a parallel track because kenneth also went to the university of antwerp another location that i was but we both had we actually followed the same we studied the same degree, applied economic sciences. We both graduated more or less around the same time. We both did our PhD more or less in the same time. And we also ended up in a similar field. So it's quite funny to see that uh, that Kenneth and myself, we, yeah, we started already quite early when we were 16. Uh, so that's, uh, and you don't always realize this, but you always, when you realize, when you see him, you realize, ah, yeah, that's a long time ago that we know each other. But anyway. So it's uh, and it's interesting that we end up in the same field, which is also quite coincidental, I think. But anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's 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 fun. <laughs> uh, so your bachelor's degree is in applied uh, economics uh, or applied yeah. economic sciences. Uh, how come you picked this degree uh, if you did not enjoy math, as far as I'm concerned? I uh, so yeah. So I just do. I, I think it's it's true that I did not really like math, in the sense that it, at the secondary school it was uh, something like uh, 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 just a survival of, of trying to get just above the 50% kind of bar in uh, all mathematics type of things. And I think I also more or less graduated in the secondary school with uh, a near pass for math and and everything like that. Um, and then at the end, I, yeah, you need to go to the university or you want to go to the university, let's put it like this. And then you have to start deciding upon, well, what should I do? What type of program am I going to follow? And then 
that that's not very easy. I think if you're 18, I also see this now at the university. But if you're 18, yeah, what do you want to do? But then I thought, yeah, I don't really like this mathematics type of thing. So you know what? I will go for a a, a program on German languages, and I wanted to go for a program uh, where I could do English and Dutch as as language, because uh, I think at that time that was apparently in my mind the best solution to go for. So I went to the university because that was the old times. You don't now you do that by the computer, but at that time you had to go to the university. You had to physically go to a person who actually started um, uh, giving you the paperwork. You have to fill it in. So I actually started filling in the paperwork for for German languages at that moment in time. But then also there was a big room with all kind of boxes with books of all different type of programs. And then I saw a program. Applied Economic Sciences with books and I started looking into these books and I thought hey uh, okay it's mathematics but I know this mathematics already it's economics but I probably already saw some of these kind of things and at a certain point I thought yeah um, maybe it's better to go for Applied Economic Sciences rather than for German languages so in the at that moment I just uh, started scratching away German languages as a as a diploma uh, or a program I wanted to participate and I wrote on Applied Economic Sciences my mother was there, my stepfather was there, they thought, oh, what's going to happen here? This guy who was doing the registration, he also came in and said, hmm, you, you, you changed your choice? I hope you did not change your choice here in the room. And then I said, yeah, I actually just changed it two minutes ago. And then he probably thought, yeah, this guy is never going to end up uh, with a degree with us. But uh, yeah, so it was not very, it's probably not very well thought about, let's put it like this. But it was a last-minute change to go to Applied Economic Sciences um, and to participate in that program at that moment in time. Mm -hmm. so. Yeah. So having a quick glimpse of your career and, and, and also what you like to, to, to study, I have the impression that we're pretty good at handling uncertainties in decision-making. <laughs> Do you think so? Because yeah. I... Because I change quite easily, or, or I change uh, gears quite easily. Let's put it like this. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I I think it's it's a bit. Yeah, probably because of changing this German language to applied economic sciences. Interestingly, of course, if you go to the uh, we had bachelor masters. If I went to the master program, um, I, I probably maybe I should first say that my second year at the bachelor program. I had to redo almost completely. I had to do a lot of courses again, and I basically uh, spent another year on the second year, let's put it like this. Also partially because of mathematics not being very good at and these kind of things. But then in the third year, in the in the first year of the master program, you also had to decide upon um, yeah, which, which, which direction, which major am I going to choose, in a sense. And then, um, the choice was also quite easily because I did not, interestingly, at that moment in time, I thought, let's go and choose the, the, the major with the least amount of courses in languages because I did not want to do any language courses anymore. And in the first two years of the bachelor program, it was full of bachelor courses on uh, uh, French, uh, German, English, and I did not want to do anything about that anymore. Unfortunately, or maybe fortunately, there was only one major where you could skip more or less all the languages. And that was the major in uh, what is called at that moment in time, quantitative economics. It was actually operations management, operations research type of courses only. So uh, 
a full program with econometrics, operations research, multivariate data analytics, all this kind of high mathematical stuff was in this program. And I thought, yeah, if this is what I have to do to avoid languages, then let's do that. And yeah, that it, apparently it was no problem at that moment in time because I managed to, to, to do that program and to finish it very successful at that moment in time. Yeah? So, 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 yeah, it was also not very well thought about because it was not a positive choice for, let's say, mathematics. It was more a negative choice not, not to do any language, if you want. So, so that's also maybe managing uncertainty. I don't know. But yeah, yeah. It, uh, it's yeah. like uh, uh, after seeing uh, your successful career, I could never imagine that some decisions were basically made on, on the verge of trying to avoid things rather to really pursue something. <laughs> so that's somewhat yeah, amusing. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah, but not many, okay, these kind of things were not very well, maybe not very well thought about in the sense that there was a strong strategy behind. Uh -huh. The strategy was maybe sometimes take the yeah, avoiding certain things. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's funny to see that I first wanted to choose something in, in, in languages and afterwards I tried to avoid languages as much as possible. So it's a bit like uh, uh, and I'm choosing something where I probably was not very good at mathematics and everything like that. So, but anyway, other uh, yeah, it seems like a random walk. <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe. And that's also afterwards, it all seems strange. But on the other end, there was no master plan. Let's put it like this. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, did you take uh, coding classes or and do you enjoy coding? Yeah, I, of course, at that moment in time in the in the in the bachelor and master programs, we also did some uh, coding courses. But of course, you have to imagine this was the uh, uh, 90, I started studying in 92, so it's somewhere the period 92, 93, 94. That was the start of computers, that was the start of uh, using personal computers and these kind of things. So I, I started, of course, coding uh, and I had some courses in coding, in which was basic, uh, the real, the, the programming language basic at that moment in times. Even sometimes I looked a bit into C. Yeah, there was a bit on the on the border of, of C++ type of things, if I remember well. And then I, I even had a course on on the use of Unix, eh? Unix course on the, the low-level terminal commands and these kind of things. But, um, but that was really starting up all these kind of things. And it was mostly in my PhD years that I started programming in the use of, at that time, already Visual Basic, which was this Microsoft Visual Basic invention. And, and using some Java type of things and so on, so on. Even Pascal, I did some programming in. So it's actually, but it was a lot of um, on-the-job type of learning. Eh? Like it's not a very strong course component. It was more about self-learning, trying to understand and 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 just implement stuff yourself and see how it goes. Huh? Mm -hmm. uh, and how was your introduction to OR? Yeah. So I my yeah. So OR is of course a broad field, eh? and and um, um, my my PhD. If you look at my PhD, that was on the use of queuing, queuing networks, queuing theory. If you want, applying that to traffic flow theory. So the idea was that we have uninterrupted traffic flows. So think about um, traffic on highways, on freeways, and if I have this traffic there this traffic has a certain behavior. There is a sort of a speed flow density relationship between how the traffic flow behaves. And uh, the idea at that moment in time was, can we, can we use 
queuing theory, queuing models to somehow model this traffic. So that was a very different type of modeling type of mechanism because it's based on queuing theory. It's a closed form formulas, which you can optimize, which you can use and fill in the, the functions and so on and so on. And now you try to somehow come up with a good representation of these traffic flows by using uh, stochastics in terms of arrival times, in terms of service times. Uh, so you basically use uh, arrival distribution, service distributions. You use a network of queues with finite queues and so on, so on to model that. So I did not do anything in, in my PhD on combinatorial optimization. Uh, so that was not really combinatorics of what I was doing. It was more about uh, queuing theory, which was at that moment in time, of course, um, coming out of this production and manufacturing type of setting. And many people were doing production theory, production management, manufacturing systems, and looking into that. And then the, the, the main uh, mechanism was using queuing. And my promoter was also coming out of that world. And the idea was, let's use this in traffic. So that's, uh, in a sense, what I did in my PhD. And then I graduated in 2003 with, uh, with a PhD on that one, January 2003. And then I had a few months before I started working in Eindhoven. And then I started looking into something which was called the vehicle routing problem. Ah, so I thought, I've heard about that one. Let's look, uh, let's look at that one because uh, I heard from that one because of um, Wout Dullard was also in, in the University of Antwerp. And Wout was working on this vehicle routing type of problem. And... Um, he was, of course, working at that time, looking into this uh, uh, Solomon paper in terms of this uh, insertion algorithm and so on and so on. But I, I heard the presentation of him and I talked a few times to him. And then I think the, the first question I had is that I, I'm working on these traffic flows and I'm working on this traffic flow modeling. And I have a sort of a, a closed form formula to actually model that in a good way. So why don't we add this traffic dimension into the vehicle routing problem? Because, of course, these, these arcs or these edges we are using, they might be congested. And hey, I have a nice formula, so I can use that to put into that. And that was actually the first steps towards looking into this vehicle routing problem and trying to add this queuing theory into the, into the vehicle routing problem. Right. And that was a starting point. That's really the starting point at that moment in time. So early 2003, looking into the problem, try to identify what is this vehicle routing about mm -hmm. and who works on this kind of strange problem in a sense huh? yeah that's that's interesting uh i mean i had no idea that you did not work with uh, combinatorial optimization through your phd and, and by the way uh this idea of modeling traffic with queuing theory uh take off at any point yeah so what what you see of course when i um so my i started working at eindhoven at that moment in time so i had something from january until may sort of a postdoc period if you want and mm -hmm. in May 2003 I started working in Eindhoven and the first research proposal I, I wrote and I submitted to the NSF in the Netherlands was actually on this story it was using queuing in a vehicle routing type of setting so the queuing theory for traffic adding that to the vehicle routing so this basic idea I mentioned mm -hmm. that was actually the first proposal the research proposal I wrote for the National Science Foundation National Science Foundation in uh, in the Netherlands and that was granted at that moment in time so that was actually even better because that was a granted proposal 
and the PhD student that worked that started working on that one is Ola Ola Jabali, mm. so, who is now in Italy. So that's also my first real attempt to to work together with a PhD student on a vehicle routing problem. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, I think after a, a year, Ola abandoned the path of queuing theory, but she kept on going into the vehicle routing type of literature and vehicle routing type of uh, problems, which was actually yeah, very interesting for me as well. Though. Okay. Um, you, of course, you did your PhD, but uh, at that point, uh, did you consider taking a time off from academia and work in the industry before and or after the PhD? No, so I think after the PhD, I knew already I want to stay in academia. Um, when I was doing my PhD, I yeah, that was also the time that um, um, companies were hiring like crazy. And then at a certain point, I think in the in the second year of my PhD, I also thought you know what, I also should go to a company and start, should start working at a company. Why should I do this PhD? What, what do I need with a PhD? So I started working at a company because they were, of course, offering me a nice salary. They were giving me a car, a mobile phone at that moment in time, which was already very important. There was something really hyping. And I started working at a company. And this took me as a programmer, by the way. And this, uh, this took me three months and then I realized this is not what I should be. This is not where I should be. And then after four months, I decided I want to go back to the university. So I went back with some uh, uh, with uh, droopy eyes. Can I come back to the <laughs> university, please? And then my promoter at that moment in time uh, uh, said, OK, you can come back. Your position is still available. So I started working. So I already knew what it was to work at the company. And I also knew that I didn't want to do that anymore. So that's why yeah after the phd i knew i want to stay in academia i want to stay academic towards an assistant professor and grow up to a full professor position and so there was no mm -hmm. doubt about that anymore okay uh so there was nothing to run away from anymore <laughs> no because i ran away already and i came back so actually, <laughs> uh, so i already had the experience about what it was and maybe it was a bad experience so it could be also not very representative mm -hmm. but at the end I thought, yeah, I don't want to go back to, to this industry type of thing mm -hmm. uh, where I have to do all the time work, which I might not like. And now in an academic setting, of course, you have much more freedom, mm -hmm. relatively speaking, to do what you want. I see. Uh, so, Tom, finding a position as a faculty member a few months after completing a PhD uh, is not something easy and, and it does not depend entirely on you. Uh, still, you quickly managed to find a job. Yeah, so as I as I said, Anand, I knew that I wanted to stay academic. I wanted to stay in, at the university. I also knew at that moment in time that um, I I wanted to stay. I wanted to go for an assistant professor type of position. That's um, also around the same time. I um, I also received an offer to be a postdoc at the Antwerp University, because I received an NSF grant from Belgium to um, to be a postdoc at the University of Antwerp. Um, and I thought that's a good opportunity for, three, I think it was three years at that moment in time, actually. But then I also saw the vacancy in Eindhoven. So at Eindhoven University, there were um, three positions at that time. I don't remember anymore which ones, but one of them was retail operations. And I thought, yeah, I don't know anything about retailing beyond going to the supermarket and these kind of things. 
So, but I just thought, let's just apply for that position and at Eindhoven. And um, yeah, I applied somewhere, I don't remember, early, early 2003. And a few months later, they offered me a position. And then I, uh, yeah, that was the start of getting into the university, but in, in Eindhoven then. But my, my, my starting position was working on, on retail operations, eh? retail operations, uh, inventory management, doing a lot of uh, capacity management, uh, labor, inventory, uh, interface between people and, and inventory, shelf stacking stuff, and a little bit of transportation, because of course, a lot of stuff comes into the store via warehouse, which is transportation type of activities and so on so on. So you saw that it was also the group here in Eindhoven is a fantastic group, of course. But at that time, there was the, the, the strong focus was on inventory, inventory control, inventory management, production management. This queuing kind of thing was also here. So you saw that this group was not doing much on transportation at that moment in time. Um, they had a professor in transportation, but he left a few years before I entered. So the most of the type was inventory, production, supply chain, if you want, in a broad sense. And I came in there and I did, uh, I was working on retail operations with two other colleagues who were already very experienced in this domain. And I stepped into that domain. Mm -hmm. um, so again, switching from something to another thing in terms of domain, but um, was really fun. It really is interesting. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you already told that uh, you did not study computer optimization during your PhD, and and learning the nuances of of computer optimization is arguably not an easy task. Uh, I mean, one uh, often needs mentorship to properly understand the subject and to get to know the computational tricks um, and things like that. Uh, since you're mostly on your own uh, after finishing your PhD, uh, how was it in your case? Yeah, so, so there are two things what happened. Eh? The first thing is, of course, that at, at, at Eindhoven, eh, where I started then as an assistant professor, I got the first grant. I got a grant, uh, this, uh, this, what I was just saying, that Ola Jabali mm -hmm. was working on. So that was already a sort of a, let's say, joint. <coughs> that was already a sort of a jointly learning the journey, jointly learning together about what is it about. At a certain point, I also got another grant, and that was um, Saidabia was working on that one. And then Said wanted to work on exact solution techniques. But of course, I also did not know anything about exact solution techniques. But then I, uh, I connected to, um, to Stefan Rabke at the, at the Technical University in Denmark. And I said, hey, Stefan, I have a PhD student, and he wants to work on exact solution techniques. I also don't know much about it. Would it not? Would it be possible to come to Denmark for a week and get a crash course on uh, column generation, branch and bound, branch and price? I, of course, I did already branch and bound and these kind of things when I was studying at university, but just applying it to the setting of vehicle routing and how does that go? And then Stefan was very. I was very happy that Stefan said, "Of course, come over and we spend the weekend uh, in in Denmark getting the crash course of Stefan." which he normally gives to his master's students and then doing the programming and doing the implementations and, and gradually learning. And then, of course, Said, he went with during his PhD to spend three, four months in Denmark to work together with Stefan. And so you see that gradually, yeah, by, by, by learning in a sense on the job together with the PhD students, 
I also had to, so I, in the beginning more than now because I don't have the time anymore, but in the beginning I also spent a lot of time on, on, on reading up everything myself and programming everything myself as well. So it was really about the first years, especially the first five to ten years, I did a lot of programming myself just to have an understanding how does this work. And then if you implement it yourself, then you also understand it yourself and then you can really yeah, hopefully, at, at least, at, I, I guess it, it works out fine now, but then you learn a lot by doing it and reading up and implementing a number of key papers. And um, so combining that with crash courses from Stefan, maybe some other people I talked to, eventually get, getting into a larger network so that you also know what is the relevant literature. Um, so then you start uh, moving into the domain before you know it, you're part of the vehicle routing or the transportation science and logistics community, and, 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 and it moved eventually. So that was actually the fun part. Wow, yeah, it's not really common for one to, you know, uh, change fields. Uh, I mean, uh, it was, you still remain in OR, but, uh, you know, learning all these things after your PhD, uh, it takes a lot of uh, dedication and work ethic. and and I'm very impressed uh, uh, that you managed to do that. Uh, did you know Stefan before, or you contacted him at random? No, no. So I think um, the the good thing about Eindhoven, let's put it like this, is that I think we get we give and get a lot of opportunities to people. Huh? So we we try to give many opportunities to young faculty to collaborate with many people. So I, at that time. We, yeah, we had money to travel, or we have money to travel around as well still today and to go and spend time on learning. So I think uh, at that moment I didn't know Stefan, but I, I know um, that I send out my PhD students for every project. Every PhD student can go three months abroad to work with some other people. So that was the, the starting point to get connected to Stefan. Stefan, I have a student and he wants to work with you, but we also need to learn a little bit. So. And that's when I started reaching out to people. But in the beginning, yeah, look, as I said, I I thought this vehicle routing problem looks interesting. I even, I started programming. Uh, my first implementation was in ant colony optimization of all heuristics. Uh, but I thought, hey, this looks like a fun kind of heuristic. Of course, eventually we moved into other heuristics which were more performing in these kind of things. Then it was only heuristics that we said, maybe we should also go into exact solution techniques. So you start learning on that. But I think it's always been, I always liked playing around with many different kinds of things. So I, as I said, I did queuing in my PhD. I moved into retail operations at the university in Eindhoven. That was most of the work we did was in inventory control. So inventory management, but I also did some production and manufacturing stuff. So I still did some queuing theory applied to a manufacturing setting. If you look at there are also papers there. And then eventually I moved into vehicle routing and transportation in general. And then this became more and more important because there were more and more funding coming in. There was more and more PhD students working on that. Then I had an associate professor chair on transport and logistics, then a full professor chair. And it basically became larger and larger and larger. And at the end, it became just the, the key focus of everything. Mm -hmm. But again, that's because probably PhDs, interest, funny problems, reaching out to other people. But in the beginning, I, I, ah, I did not know anybody. Mm -hmm. And I guess nobody knew me as well. So that's the other part of the point. But, but, but it was really reaching out to people, getting to know people. 
and trying to collaborate with people. And I think I'm very, very grateful that many people wanted to collaborate with me and with my PhD students. So. Right. Uh, so you kept on expanding your network and you ended up reaching the folks in, in Montreal? Yes. Yeah, that's again, Ola Jabali, uh, similar like Said. Ola wanted to, um, um, so she wanted to go also for a three month stay. Yeah? She wanted to go abroad and she wanted to work with somebody in uh, in Canada in the Surelt gang or clan or let's say the people in Montreal. And yeah, we had some discussion about that moment in time and then we uh, we thought let's let's try to connect to uh, to Michel Michel Jandrou, and then um, I did not know him. Um, Ola also did not know him, but again similar like Stefan, I, I just reached out to to Michel and I said, hey Michel, I have a PhD student and she wants to come and work with you for three months on a vehicle routing type of problem at that time consistent vehicle routing. And would you be interested to host her in the time in, in Montreal? And he said yes, which was quite interesting and very, very happy about that, actually. And then I remember I did not know Michelle, so, but then we, um, we, we met each other at an informs conference. We had a, a lunch together to discuss what all I could do or what all I might want to do. And that... Um, it felt like a blind date at a certain point in time, but uh, but at the end it was uh, the start of uh, of a collaboration with Michel with many people in the in the in the Cyrault group, um, which actually uh, I, I'm still very grateful about. And I think that's also what I tried to. So I think the, the 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 nice thing about many people in the field is that they are very willing to collaborate with any other people and with many people. And, and that's also what I try to mirror. So I also try to, if people want to come to, to Eindhoven, I always try to facilitate that as much as possible because I think it helped me a lot. But I also see that this costs energy also from my side because if I host people, this costs energy to, to have them to work with them. So I also see that it also costed energy for Michel, Joubert, Theo, all the people where we were working with. But I'm, I'm, I'm still very grateful that they actually were open to do that because they, yeah, who was I, mm -hmm. or who am I? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. So uh, this this uh, this attitude of uh, trying to co collaborate with people uh, from different countries, different groups, it only enriches uh, uh, the community, and it's uh, something that should be done, you know, more and more because it's it's very nice. Uh, you mentioned uh, 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 the one and only Professor Jubela Pot, and it seems that you have a special connection with him. Ah. <laughs> Yeah, I always I always joke a little bit that uh, Gilbert is my PhD student because he uh, he got his he got an honorary doctorate uh, at Eindhoven. His first honorary doctorate was from us at the university in Eindhoven, and then I was the honorary promoter of the honorary doctorate. So in that sense, uh, I'm the I, I'm an honorary promoter of uh, of the big Gilbert Laporte, uh, which was also uh, also very nice to see that we at the university were able to give an honorary doctorate away. In this field, and also it, it gave a lot of uh, merit to to the, the track record at that moment in time of Gilbert because he was one of the uh, he had an impressive CV already at that time, which is a few years ago, and 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 so we were able to do that. That was also a very nice celebration in uh, in Eindhoven about to 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 give him the the the, the this this special degree and this this very high honor to that. 
So that was very happy to do that. Yeah, I remember uh, when that happened, you posted some photos uh, and like walking around the streets, right? And yeah, yeah, that's it, in the Netherlands. Um, all these kind of things are very ceremonial with, with gowns and, and, and caps and whatever have you. And all very strictly timed. You can say something for two minutes and then the honorary doctorate should say thank you and he should add some sentences and they should also. So everything is very well timed and extremely nicely organized because this ceremony makes it makes it give a lot of yeah, cachet. It gives a nice it gives a nice feeling. And, and, and that sometimes I think we might sometimes forget because people are they get honored. And we also should celebrate that in a good way. Uh -huh. And that's what they do in the Netherlands in a very nice way as well. Always, always with gowns and this kind of thing. So. Right. Uh, Tom, I know you like to work on the interface between knowledge base and decision making. Can you elaborate more on this? So knowledge base, uh, the idea with, with what, I, what I see happening now over the, over the past years, and this is this moving into the use of data, the use of real life data, the use of, um, of, of rich data sets in applying that into decision making. And I, uh, that's now people are talking more and more about artificial intelligence in these kind of things. Uh, of course, over the time, over the past years, this was more into combinations of um, data, data sets real life data collected somehow and, and do something with that data. And, 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 and I think over the years, this was also a little bit more the, the strong focus of everything I did, meaning that there is something happening in practice. There is something happening out there. And how do I translate that information, that data, that these ideas into sensible decision making? And so I, I'm, I'm not, and of course, I'm, I'm also sometimes not exactly the, the cleanest on this one, but I, I'm, I'm not extremely enthusiastic about people who are sitting in their office and, and very nicely come up with fantastic toy problems. And they, they invent the economic order quantity variation number 2022, and they have a fantastic paper on that, but that's, there is nobody waiting for that in practice. So this kind of rich type of problems originating from practice and, and having this kind of, um, um, let's say, these nice features from practice into your models, into your decision making, make it extremely difficult to solve or extremely difficult to do something with these type of models. But it actually makes it also very interesting to work on. So working on this on this type of toy problem is not is, is, is of course, could be interesting for some people. But I, I'm, I don't really want to do that in the sense that I try to look into in, in at re, to reality, to, to companies, to decision makers. Why do you make certain decisions? And can I somehow derive information out of that and use that into my decision making? And of course, decision making in our world, in the OR world, is a little bit on mathematical models, building more, let's say, uh, taking into account more information, more features, and so on and so on. And, and uh, what you see happening now over the over the last three, four, five years is that this kind of the data hype, eh? data is available. We need more. We can do something with this data. Data-driven optimization. Um, and... Data-driven optimization towards uh, yeah, almost automatic intelligence, automated intelligence, artificial intelligence. 
reinforcement learning now. Mm -hmm. At the time, it was approximate dynamic programming as, as methods in a sense to cope with that. Yeah, that's, that, that is quite interesting because these kind of things actually are an, enabling you to make richer decisions. They help you to make rich decisions into a real life context. But then, of course, it is the, the results are less stylized, so it's less clean results. Mm -hmm. So sometimes you also have to downsize a little bit and to, to also make it a little bit smaller and that it might get less um, realistic from, from, this, from this reality check type of perspective, mm -hmm. but it gets publishable in a certain way as well. So you also have to find a good way in between. But that, that's usually, I think, my, my over the past 15, 20 years, most of my research, also even my PhD already, it is trying to recognize what is happening in practice. Why is traffic following this type of behavior? And why is this not modeled in that way? Because there is uncertainty. So why do I, why do I not put that explicitly into the model? We have vehicle routing problems, but there is congestion on the roads. Why is there no congestion in the vehicle routing problem at that time? 15 years ago. Why don't we take into account uncertainty? Then you get into the stochastic type of vehicle routing problems and all these kind of things. And this is really interesting. And, and I think the data in this knowledge-based discussion and these kind of things will help to make better decisions, but it will also complicate things because it, uh, you get much more into a dynamic type of situation where data information data is popping up all the time which you need to process into information and then you need to decide am i going to take an action yes or no if i do take an action which action do i take mm -hmm. so you get into many more dynamic type of problems as well so it, there, this is a bit yeah where i think if you if you ask me where would you look into the coming years most of the phds are are, are taking elements of these type of uh, uh, taking elements out of this type of interface into these real life problems into complexity into complex model decision making and these kind of things they they work on these type of aspects mm -hmm. and of course ai reinforcement learning whatever learning mechanism and 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 doing something that in a real time setting this is going to be interesting for sure for the coming years as well mm -hmm. more stochastic type of variations if you want in a more uh, offline type mm -hmm. of setting so you said you like to look into uh, real-life applications and sometimes to publish papers uh, with with uh, problems uh, that you know uh, came from real world, but a really intricate and complicated. The mathematical formulation can be with several indices and might not be that digestible uh, uh, to to publish everything. So how do you address uh, these situations and have you faced? Any uh, difficulties sometimes to publish a paper that was based on a real-life problem? Yeah, so the, of course there is a trick in these kind of things, Anand. You, you have a, a life, a real-life problem, and then usually you write in the introduction a lot of information about this real-life problem, and then of course you have to somehow funnel it, you narrow it down to something more tangible, and it also depends a bit what type of message you want to give. Sometimes you don't want to, you don't want to reduce this. You don't want to do that. But then you end up with a few papers where we do simulation, simulation-based optimization type of things, where you, or sort of a rolling horizon setting where you take much more information into account over time. Yeah, then these papers are typically, let's say, methodologically speaking, less strong, less deep. 
than if you would really go into uh, yeah, I'm, I'm really making it smaller so that I can do a fantastic column generation and a branch and price and branch and price and cut and whatever type of uh, things you could come up with. Yeah, then, then of course, at a certain point, some of these papers are like very nice problem setting. This is a nice real life problem, but then you narrow it so down to something so small that you can even sometimes wonder is there, where is the real life aspect in that because exactly. you, you want to have a much more methodological contribution at that moment in time mm -hmm. which is fine but if you ask me what is the most fun papers it's really about this kind of much more let's say more application driven type of things because otherwise it's something yeah these these more methodological papers at a certain point i think it's important that phd students do that and that they can show that they are able to to do these kind of things but of course, yeah, uh, if you explain this to your mother or to your grandparents, they don't understand at all what you're talking about. If you then say, I'm actually organizing the, uh, making sure that you get your orders delivered on time, then people understand that all of a sudden and that there is some heavy, ugly mathematics behind, they probably don't care. Uh -huh. So you see also uh, that, yeah, that there is always this trade-off between what is the focus point and depending on what you put focus on, this leads to a different type of paper, different type of journal, different type of publication and output. Mm -hmm. uh, you, you have done a lot of research on urban logistics and multimodal networks. Uh, can you cite some of your main contributions in this context and what type of problems arising in these domains are worth being investigated in your opinion? Mm. Yeah, so uh, of course, uh, urban logistics, uh, city logistics, all variations there are, are, are something I've been working on quite a lot. Uh, there were a few papers there. I think what I what I really enjoyed, and that's really something which 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 was coined by by with with a few other people at the time, is this concept of this cargo hitching. A cargo hitching concept was actually in a sort of a city context. Can I use the empty space in um, let's say public transportation settings? There is empty space. There is a metro line and the metro line is full in certain moments because of people, but at other moments the metro is going and it is half full. Can I make use of this space, this empty space, which is of course time and location dependent, can I make use of that empty space to put in freight? Can I use that space to put in packages, cage containers, containers, whatever have you, so that you somehow have cargo hitching on the public transportation type of setting. and and and. And I, at this setting, we use this setting of a cargo hitching, applying that into a, uh, an urban context because urbanization leads to traffic jams, leads to high occupants of the roads and these kind of things. But on the other hand, if there is a tram driving in the street and the tram is empty, but it has to be there because there is a schedule and it is forced by the schedule because of the municipality or whatever that he needs to drive, why don't we use that space to put in packages? Because then you can get some vehicles off the road and you put them into the tram or you put them into the metro. So there is a sort of a large body of literature around this cargo hitching idea, applying this into an urban context and to, 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 to how to do that, applying that to taxis, applying that to uh, bus lines, train fixed schedules lines, using combinations of um, on-demand transportation, combining that with um, 
with train rides and whatever have you. So these kind of ideas we, we try to elaborate quite a lot on. It's a very nice application domain. There are a few um, uh, cases, real life cases happening already. There are a few of them happening. But of course, it's, um, it leads to interesting scheduling discussions, optimization discussions in terms of synchronization, matching type of principles, uh, prioritizing discussions. We are now looking into um, if I'm also able to adapt the train schedule for people, how would I do that? Would I, because I could also keep the schedule fixed and I just plug in some parade. Or if I'm actually saying we have two sources of demand, a, a person demand and a freight demand, how can I actually schedule the train then at that moment in time? What does, is it going to be more often or less frequently? And can I do something with these kind of things? So you also start explicitly putting these two things together. And that's, the, yeah, that, that's really in this uh, cargo hitching, applying it to an urban context. Of course, in an urban context in general, you see also all these kind of discussions about multi-channel, omni-channel discussion. You buy online, you get it delivered at home, you bring it back to the store, or you get it delivered in a locker wall. Do I want to have it delivered there? You get it delivered in your trunk of your car. They get these occasional driver type of things. So there is a nice body of, of, of many interesting research problems there. And especially if you take into account stochastics, uncertainty, dynamics, there is a whole body of stuff we can still do, which is which is still unresearched or is, to, is waiting to be researched like crazy. So this is a fantastic domain to work in, um, in this urbanized type of context. And then it gets interesting, and then I will stop because otherwise I keep on talking for an hour and I, that's <laughs> not the idea, but if you then also take into account this multimodal type of context, usually multimodality, long haul, long distances, because you need to do all these synchronizations, you need to swap between modalities. But of course, if you have mega cities, if you talk about Beijing, if you talk about Mexico City, do you want to have the same vehicle doing all these kind of things uh, as a whole? Or can you also somehow learn some of these multimodal let's say, can you use some of these multimodal models and apply that into this urbanized type of setting by using different modalities to put big volumes from one side of the city to the other side of the city and then combining that with uh, more last mile logistics. But then you get into a domain on service network design, combining that with uh, vehicle routing type of problems and all variations there. So there is a many, many, many nice things induced in this very small, stupid environment called a city, which leads to extremely interesting problems. Wow. Yeah, it's just an endless list of uh, possible applications. And yeah, that's 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 nice to hear because, uh, I mean, there is a lot of work to be done and, and, and let's hope uh, uh, some some good uh, progress is, is made uh, over the next years. Uh, when did you start gravitating your activities towards academic governance? Yeah, I, um, with these kind of things in terms of academic governance, um, you stay very silent until they ask you. So the, the, the main trick is, Anand, you never suggest, you never propose yourself because otherwise people say, hey, this is interesting, he can do that. And so I, I waited quite long and, and I did, of course, a little bit 
uh, of the, the smaller academic governance, uh, the managerial tasks, uh, being a chairman of an exam committee or being a chair of this and ad hoc committee and these kind of things. So you try to do that a little bit under the radar, not too visible, because uh, you, at a certain point they will find you, but you just want to have that, let's say, you want to wait a bit longer before they find you. Uh, that's the idea. And at a certain point, yeah, they found me. That's the idea, of course. And they probably saw that I did some of these smaller tasks in a good way. And then the, the dean asked me to, to take on uh, the program chairship of uh, industrial engineering bachelor program. At a certain point, this went very well. Then they said, two years later, do you want to become the uh, director of education, which is similar to um, associate dean of education in, a, in another university? Do you want to become that and do that type of uh, job for the coming four years? And, uh, and, and I said, yes, of course, I think it's always fun to do these kind of things. It also takes a lot of work. But then I, I also try to um, protect research time, if I call it like this. So I, I said, I want to be your associate dean of education, fine, but I will not be teaching anymore at that moment in time. So I will, I will somehow substitute teaching time to uh, managerial time, and I keep my research time somehow protected, which is of course not always true because the managerial tasks take too much time. And of course, you eat that away from the research time. But the idea was basically, I want to do that, but I don't want to lose on my research activities too much. Mm -hmm. And of course, that, yeah, it's not always difficult. It's not always easy, better said, to, to protect this. Eh? It's not always very nicely siloed. Monday and Tuesday, I do this. But Wednesday and Thursday, I do that. that. That never works like that. But that's, yeah, at a certain point, I got pulled into that. And now I'm, I'm doing that for... Yeah, two years and a bit now already, three years almost as a, as this uh, education director. And this is uh, three bachelor programs, four master programs, two PhD programs, so 2,500 students in my department. And I do that with a fantastic nice team of other program chairs that actually help me out. But at the end of the right, I'm end responsible for the programs together with the dean. And I also discuss at the university level with all the other directors of education of the other departments on, on these type of topics, strategically speaking. Though. Yeah, honestly, I don't know how you do that. Uh, you know, managing so many uh, people, uh, being involved in multiple leadership positions uh, while following the work of, say, 20 PhD students or so. It's it's quite crazy. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 But I, I think Anand, that, that is true. Eh? But but one thing in there is important to, to, to mention is that if you all if you have the ambition to do that on your own, that will never work. So as so I um, I have a fantastic team of people around me that actually help out on different things. Eh? So I have a team of people who are content wise managing the programs. So there are four or five people, program chairs working with me. I have a team of uh, 20 people were managed by a manager of the education affairs and uh, that's the they they manage the operations of education so they take care of all these kind of things in terms of operationalizing education then in research every phd student i work with also has one or two other people who are collaborate younger people assistant professors who also participate in the supervision process so if you start looking into that, and then you build up a sort of a team of people 
very enthusiastic people, extremely smart people in many cases, uh, uh, who are extremely interested, enthusiastic, and working on with these kind of things. And then, yeah, then you can do a lot because you get the multiplier on on many, many, many different type of aspects. And um, and also you need to let it happen sometimes. It's important that this this moves, and I, it, it should not be depending on me. Let's put it like this, right, or right. me alone. Yeah. yeah. So that that's the point, because if I'm on the critical path, everybody needs to wait for a long time. So that's something you don't want. Yeah, yeah. But then when you surround yourself with uh, excellent people, uh, that allows you to you know to escalate, if you will, to to handle more things at the same time, right? Uh, you have been involved uh, with multiple collaborations with companies. Uh, could you give uh, examples of some of these successful partnerships? Yeah, so we, um, I, I, in, in my research, I sometimes also connect, of course, connect to companies because most of the research projects we, uh, we do in the Netherlands, uh, if they are Netherlands funded, we usually need somewhere between 20 to 50% of the funding needs to come from companies. So if you get 100, if you have a budget of 100 euros, then usually the the funding agency gives something like 50 to 80 euros for that, and the remaining 20 or to 50 euros you have to find from a company. So it means you really have to reach out to companies and collaborate with companies because otherwise you will not be able to to get your research project going. So I have a, we have a lot of ongoing contacts with companies like this ASML company, this chip producing machine, uh, chip machine producing company over here. We do with DHL, we do with another few other logistics service providers. We also work with retailers, Nike, Albert Heijn, uh, whatever type of, yeah, we have a big set of companies and, and we work together with them with our students, with our PhD students, our master students, they give data to us. And in many cases, they also give money to us. Right? So they also participate in research projects and they provide us with the needed research funds to actually match the NSF funds so that we can actually uh, do or hire our PhD students and so on. So, so this is again, yeah, also something that takes time because you need to build up a, a long, longer term relationship with companies. Because if you go to a company and you ask a company, um, I need money, can you give it to me? They most likely will say, uh, you know what, there is the door you can leave. But if you have a sort of a longer term relationship and you collaborate with them and you also do some research and you do some uh, presentations for them or you give some training or you, then eventually you get a, a longer term relationship with people and then you can ask things for them. You can ask things back and, you can, uh, they, and they will be very happy. They, they will basically give you the they will give you what you want at that moment in time. So there are people I'm, I'm now working already with for the last 15 years. And these are companies I work with for 15, 16, 17 years in the logistics provider, logistics service provider sector. They actually have a very nice uh, setup. And each time they need something, they come to me. And sometimes we lose each other for two years, three years, and then they come back. And, and so we, uh, that, and that's really, you need to invest time in the relationship and then uh, you get into yeah, a strong relationship and then you set up the supply chain forum to collaborative uh, set up with other people to actually connect companies to us and these kind of things. And, and, and this is the mechanism to do that. 
build up an intimate relationship with companies for the long term. Yeah, so that's a very interesting perspective. So it's uh, uh, the core of these collaborations rely on trust uh, mostly. Yeah. Uh, yeah, especially yeah. if you see in the long term. So, so you, you, the, the trust is, of course, important because uh, and the thing is, the funny thing is, um, I, I always say you work with the company, but in a sense, you don't work with the company. You work with the person yeah. at the company. Yeah. And, um, and, and, and if you like the person and the person likes you, this collaboration goes very good. You have a fantastic collaboration. And it's even better because if this person leaves this company, you might lose the company, but this person goes to another company and works at another company and he comes back to you because he trusts you, he knows you, he knows what he gets from you and these kind of things. Mm -hmm. So it is really a people business in, in these kind of settings. And of course, you try to diversify that there is not one person at a company you collaborate with so that you also have a spread of, of people. But, but it is about yeah, liking each other, knowing what you can do, knowing what you can deliver and how you can help them out in whatever way at the company. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, so tell me about your role as, as director of the European Supply Chain Forum and what is the this forum about? Yeah, yeah. So uh, part of the structure in terms of connecting to companies is uh, something we, we put into uh, an organization called the European Supply Chain Forum. And we started with that 20 six years ago, so I did not work here at the university yet, but it was uh, founded by Tom de Kock, one of my colleagues at the uh, colleague full professors here at the university. And um, they started with the forum, supply chain forum, in terms of we need to somehow uh, professionalize the supply chain practice. We need to put in all this knowledge we have, we need to somehow translate that, transfer that into the company setting. Again, reaching out, connecting to. And of course, over the years, over the 25, 26 past years, this of course evolved into also that supply chains changed uh, in, a, in, in from maybe more inventory focus, production, ERP type of settings, more and more into um, even, um, let's say, collaboration type of settings, horizontal collaboration. Uh, sales and operations, uh, all different type of topics in terms of people, how do people work in teams and these kind of things. So you see that we also evolved. But over the years, yeah, the forum moved and moved and moved. And I think four, five years ago, I took over the uh, the directorship from Tom, Tom de Kock, my colleague. And then we started diversifying, we started building up. But the key is still the same. We want to collaborate with companies. We want to have a nice relationship with companies, a long-term relationship with companies, and we provide them with talent, knowledge, and network. And network is really the fact that they can collaborate with each other. Companies also talk to each other via workshops we organize. We generate knowledge. Uh, we also initiate uh, research programs together with companies. So last year, we initiated a, um, a big research program the AI planner of the future, artificial intelligence planner of the future, which is a big research program where we have 12 PhD students in there. And we started last September with 12 PhD students to work on different type of topics in collaboration with these companies, with data from these companies. So that's the knowledge part. So, and then the last part is the talent. 
because what you also see is that companies are looking for students, are looking for hiring new people. They also want to train their high potentials. They want to train people. So that's the talent kind of dimension we do in the in the supply chain forum. And this proposition uh, is basically what we yeah what we offer to companies. And we have now around 70 companies participating in 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 the in the forum. And they all pay a membership fee per year and they participate and they can collaborate with us we collaborate with these research programs they come to workshops they come to round tables we do a sort of a roadmap discussions with them and we give them students master students to do projects and as a full package this is what they get every year wow. it's really interesting because it's 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 it uh, going back to this understanding what happens in practice yeah, this is my laboratory. Yeah? This is my laboratory. My these these companies are a laboratory. We don't have a, a mechanical engineering. They they put in a car. They see how many emissions are coming out or whatever. Yeah, we don't have this in our field. We need to go to a company because the company is doing the operations and the supply chain practice. So this laboratory is is the company or the company are my laboratory. And mm -hmm. that's really the fun part to again collaborate yeah. and to to, yeah. to 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 learn from what they are doing. Yeah, very nice to hear that, uh, and also very impressive uh, uh, to know you know about this uh, action and all this uh, uh, activity uh, related to to this forum. It's really really uh, amazing. Uh, and what is the secret for constantly winning so many grants over the years? <laughs> uh, um, I have no idea. So let's put, yeah, yeah, I have a good idea about it. Write a good proposal on that. So I guess <laughs> it, that's the, <laughs> uh, the starting point is, I think, uh, write reasonably good proposals. And uh, the other part is that um, uh, be lucky sometimes. The, 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 I, I once uh, I saw somewhere somebody writing the, uh, the, not the CV of successes, uh, but the CV of failures. And I think probably my CV of failures is equally long than the CV of successes. So if I would list every paper that got rejected, if I would list every proposal that did not get granted, then you probably saw an equally or probably longer list than the one which is now in the CV of successes. So I think this is really about, yeah, uh, for every proposal you write, in the beginning there might have been more proposals failed and uh, not granted. but of course over time you learn how to write and again also one one aspect in there i think is the fact that if i if we write proposals here in in eindhoven in the group um, we have this fantastic company network and in many cases if you write a proposal and you actually have an application domain or a use case and you can say hey this is actually valid for companies or external organization or non-governmental organization they can use these kind of logic and that's why we do it for that actually and that some of these companies are willing to uh, add to that that is really making a that that makes a distinguishing factor in terms of this large set of other proposals because then you have a yeah you have a fantastic use case a company or companies and they are they say this is good work and we need this yeah then it is really making it making it worthwhile to put money in there as an as a science foundation and to have the research. Right. Uh, yeah. You mentioned about failure. Perhaps uh, keeping a, keeping track uh, of the list of failures uh, and make that available could be really inspiring for people because sometimes they just see the highlights 
and whatever uh, came right but sometimes there are a lot of effort struggling at times and that can be uh, important for people to know right yeah. especially uh, young the youngsters and uh, to conclude I'll, I would like you to comment on the increasing pressure that young faculties are facing in the last years and uh, do you have any piece of advice uh, that you'd like to share with them no, I, I, I think that, that's, a, that's a fair, very, very fair point, Anand. If you look back at uh, when I started again in 2003, then uh, at that time they gave me a contract of, uh, of 10 years or five years, which could be extended with five years, so five plus five. So my tenure track was 10 years, if you want, at that moment in time. Um, they gave me relatively fast a permanent position. Um, the rules were much more, let's say, relaxed. Very relaxed. There was much less uh, pressure on people. But if you now look at, at what you have to accomplish, eh, you people, we hire people on a tenure track for five years. After four years, we evaluate them whether they, they, they are eligible for a permanent position. And then they, they get a permanent position. Sometimes they get a, a, an upgrade in the assistant professor scale. Sometimes they even get an associate professorship, but very rarely. But if you look at the amount of work you have to do and the pressure you get, and then of course it's a portfolio. You need to be very good at teaching. You need to be very good at education. You need to be very good at getting money in. You need to do some service. You need to do, uh, supervise PhD. Students. Social media at times. Social media sometimes also pops up indeed that you have to be visible in the media somehow and, and these kind of things. But then. Yeah, if you then also know, like like you said earlier, if you have a CV of failures, you also know that in the beginning, if you submit a paper, and even it happens still now even, you submit a paper, it gets rejected. Yeah, you get constantly a sort of a rejection kind of feeling, or you then there is not a sort of a, it's not always an easy environment to, to, be, to be active in. And you really need to be persistent, and you really need to be, yeah, extremely driven by what you want to do in order to be successful. And I think we at the university here, what you see is that we are uh, recognizing that a lot. And uh, we have this reward and recognition type of programs where we see that, uh, of course, we want to have a, a certain bar. You need to have a minimum level of things you need to do. But you see that we also try to put a little bit more um, um, sort of this portfolio idea and also put more visibility to the good things you did and also recognize that it does not always go right and that of course uh, it could be that sometimes you get um, yeah you get uh, basically on an, uh, on an expectation that something will go right but it's also going back to this trust discussion right? we sometimes have to trust that things will go all right that we have very good people we do a very good hiring process so if we hire in a good way, then the expectation is that all these people should actually be able to grow up to associate professor and maybe even full professor. But this is really, yeah, uh, completely against probably what happens now is that there is a lot of pressure. People are pressure cooked like crazy. They need to mm -hmm. deliver more or less everything and they get no time for that. They need to be successful on everything. Yeah. And there might be a few examples who are successful on everything but most of the people are not successful on everything so they are only they are successful on a few things and you are good in maybe other things and 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 so i think we have to be 
a bit careful because we also uh, might lose people because of this type of uh, we might lose very good people because of this kind of um, uh, maybe uh, misplaced pressure at a certain point in time and that doesn't mean that you need quality you need a minimum level of quality but we have to be also yeah, be careful that we don't get into a sort of a burnout generation which is completely off the charts not knowing what to do and and and, and, and uh, because yeah we we want to have good people and there are many good people there but we also don't need to burn them down like crazy yeah yeah i agree with you totally and we really have to care about this uh young people and be careful otherwise they will just uh go away and many talents will be lost in, in, in yeah, you know yeah. academia right and that's the future generation in a sense eh? so the ones who are starting now uh, in 20 years or 30 years 25 years they will take over this academic governance kind of things they mm -hmm. are going to be the new leaders and of course we need to of course um, foster this type of uh, this this young talent and not uh, and not lose them because of extremely high uh, deliverables or high levels of deliverables and that's something we have to be very careful with yeah so tom uh i had a lot of fun talking to you it was uh fantastic thank you a lot for your time i know you're super busy and i'm really grateful that you could uh find uh you know some some time in your uh agenda to to be with to be here today so thank you a lot no, Anand, thank you very much for having me. It was also fun from my side, and I, it was a pleasure to put time in my agenda for talking to you. Ah. So thanks for the invitation. Yeah, and I would like to extend the invitation if you want to visit us in Brazil and João Pessoa. Uh, you're most welcome. So uh, please consider that. Okay, great. Thank you. Okay, so talk to you soon, Tom. Uh, take care. Ciao. Bye. Bye-bye. Yes. Take care.